We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and learn, and pay respect to the First Nations peoples and their elders past, present, and future. We're recording on Gadigal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to episode two of Rewind's trip back to late 96 and the release of Paul Kelly's seminal Christmas song, How to Make Gravy. I'm Steve Bell. As this is a three-part affair, we highly recommend that you kick off from the beginning for Max Impact. Who's gonna make the gravy? I better won't taste the same. Just step flour, salt, a little red wine. And don't forget a dollar for tomato sauce For sweetness and an extra tang And give me love to Angus And to Frank and Dolly Tell them all I'm sorry I screwed up this time And look after Rita I'll be thinking of her Early Christmas morning When I'm standing in line That rendition of Gravy was from Night 2, Act 1 of Paul's marvellous 2000 collection, A to Z Recordings. In Episode 1, we delved into what prompted How to Make Gravy's Birth, from Paul being asked to contribute a track to the Maya Spirit of Christmas compilation, and how due to a James Blundell-related Sliding Doors moment, wrote his own song instead of choosing a cover. Paul mentioned that he'd already been working on the music for what would become How to Make Gravy with his then-current band, and in this episode we're going to hear from that band and get their perspective on how Gravy came together. As Paul is about to explain, he was in a bit of a transitional phase at the time, having shed his long-term backing band The Coloured Girls slash Messengers a few years before, worried that their distinctive sound was boxing him in, and after a period playing solo, he'd started to coalesce a new rotating squad of players around him, which at the time of Gravy had settled on Pete Luscombe, who we've met, on drums, Spencer P. Jones and Shane O'Mara on guitar, Steve Hadley on bass, and Bruce Hames on keyboards. And with Paul, of course, that makes it a three-guitar lineup. He's come back to more of a regular band now, but for, for, but, but for quite a while there was sort of like a, having a squad People coming in and out of the band, and there was, there was one. There has been one constant. Most, you know, it's Peter Luskin on drums. So he played in the original recording, and he, he's played on the new one, and he still plays with me now. Um, I mean, I do occasional tours with other, you know, with a slightly different lineups. Um, the band I the band I play with now is pretty pretty much settled since two thousand and seven. You know, with Ash Naylor and Bill McDonald and Cameron Bruce, and Dan Kelly floats in and out, in and out, and then Dan and I do a lot of duo stuff as well but that stage it was quite a, yeah it was uh a bit more you know a bit more moving around with different players around then but there was a quite a long a long stretch with Shan, Shanamara playing Spencer and Bruce Haynes uh and uh and Steve Hadley not long after making Gravy we did um a record called Words and Music that came out in 1998 with that band I remember that at that time, you know, it was a real, it was a three guitar band, so plus, plus keyboard. So it was, uh, it was very textural. Um, it was, 
I think, okay, computer, Radiohead record was probably out about then. So that they were like a three-guitar band too. So we were sort of they thought, well, if they can do it, we can, we can do it. Um, and it worked really well with Shane. Shane was a pedal guy. So Shane was a guy, with, you know, we used to, used to joke about it. Shane had a stack of pedals and, you know, and as the tours went on, there was always the pedal, the pedal board would grow. But Spencer would just have like, he would have two pedals. One was just like step on it to turn up for a guitar break and then maybe a distortion. So Spencer was sound was raw and straight out of the amp, minimal pedals, and and Shane was much more effects and texture. So they complemented each other perfectly. And I just sort of played played rhythm rhythm up the middle. So that was a that was a good combination for a while. These days Shane Amara is a respected and award-winning producer but he spent much of the late 90s playing in both Paul's band and popular indie pop outfit Rebecca's Empire, which itself had morphed out of being Stephen Cummings' backing band. Shane remembers Gravy coming together from soundcheck jams, inspired by Paul trying to remember how to play Something in the Air, the 1969 UK number one single by Thunderclap Newman, a short-lived English rock band started by, but not featuring, Pete Townsend from The Who. You'd probably know the song if you heard it. It goes like this. Here's Shane. Well, the band was well rehearsed, you know, well oiled. And so we used to just jam on songs. And, you know, there's that, and I'm sure someone said this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, there's that uh, something in the, in the air, Thunderclap Newman. Starts off with exactly the same chord progression. But uh, there's, a, and there's a few songs in the great canon of songs which are just that. I mean, it falls, if, I, if you will, if I can, it falls really easy on the guitar. You just move a shape up. So bring out the revolution. Gotta get it. Hello, Mum, have a baby. You know. <laughs> so we were trying to figure that. Like Paul's like walking around going, what happens next? What happens next? It's like a clang. I think it goes clang. It goes there. So we're trying to get work out this bastardized version on that. Because we used to jam on, you know, I mean, Paul recorded that uh, Hot Chocolate song, that beautiful, I think it's Hot Chocolate. But, you know, we just play favourite songs. And as I recall, we could never quite get it, but it was just fun to play, you know. And uh, then somehow in the morphing of that in Soundcheck, Paul presented the song, you know. Now, as Shane was just so kind to showcase, the opening riff of Something in the Air goes like this. Now, while that does sound a lot like the intro to Gravy, I'm at pains to point out here that this isn't criticism in any way. I just find this stuff endlessly fascinating. Keyboardist Bruce Hames has had a long career sharing stages with acts like Russell Morris and Bachelors of Prague. Back in 96, he was early into a roughly six-year stint playing with Paul, and he remembers the Thunderclap Newman thing being barely a blip on the radar. We were touring around America in a tour bus... And that song was sort of taking shape. And um, so I remember it 
from gestation to uh, birth, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And at the beginning, Paul was a little bit concerned because the verse chords bore a, what he thought was a passing resemblance to something in the air, um, which I was adamant. I said that it doesn't, and it doesn't matter anyway. So uh, hopefully that might have given him a little bit more confidence with the with the song. Yeah, so it was a special one for me. I just always loved the song to death. Those opening licks are pretty similar to something in there, aren't they? <laughs> oh, look, look, I don't. A, I don't have a problem with that. And B, it isn't really because Paul's got a third where he goes, dang, dang, ding, 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 and then a different one, dang, dang, and you know. To me, it's a little bit different. And anyway, it doesn't bother me. It's like saying... You can't use the word the because Shakespeare used it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they're just they're just uh, building blocks that you build a song with. So I've never been very precious about that sort of stuff. And Paul, he wasn't phased by it in the slightest either. Uh, yeah, I knew straight away. Oh, that's like um, something in the air. But um, uh, I think I'll, I'll probably. I may have been a bit worried at first, but is this, and that's I think I probably think I asked the band, what do you think? This is, what, is are we too close to something in the air? Um, and then they said, no, you're fine. They're just chords, you know, chords that have been used a lot. In fact, I, I use those chords quite a lot, you know, many of my other songs too. The open E and the F sharp minor and the G sharp minor with all open, open E strings. Um, so, I've got a few songs from those chords. Bass player Steve Hadley had a long musical partnership with Pete Luscombe and was eventually poached by Pete from Joe Camilleri's outfit, The Black Sorrows, when Pete left that band to play with Paul. Uh, well, Pete and I were kind of like a team, you know, for quite a long time, way back, you know, like Vince Jones and Wilbur Wilde and back in our jazz days, you know. And then, you know, Pete was in The Sorrows and we used to do lots of recording together and and when he sort of hooked up with Paul, he said, you know, you want to come and play with us, you know, and I said, yeah, great, sure, you know, And but Joe wouldn't speak to me for two years afterwards. But anyway, we're, we're friends now. <laughs> yeah. And I stayed with Paul for 15 years. Steve also remembers the musical bed of gravy coming together at Soundchecks, but he explains how the song took on a whole new life once Paul added the lyrics to the mix. Well, that's what we'd always do with every song. You know, Paul would come in and we'd usually, you know, treat sound check as a bit of a, like a rehearsal, you know, try stuff out. And, um, you know, Paul had this sort of thing going on and, you know, try and get something going. And, you know, often he'd have lyrics that were, you know, one, about one thing and then a few days later he'd come in and be hot, a totally different song, you know. It's like I don't know where he gets the time to write these, but... And Lindsay Field, a dear old friend of mine, sort of was doing the Maya Christmas record and asked Paul if he would like to contribute a song and Paul sort of said, well, fuck it, I'll just write my own, you know, and it was gravy. It's the most iconic song I've played on and I've played on thousands, you know, but it was all sort of really last-minute thing and it wasn't on one of Paul Kelly's records. It was just a song that he wrote for Lindsay for the Maya Christmas record and it's become this, like, icon, you know, fairy tale of New York kind of, you know, Christmas song kind of thing. Award-winning engineer Simon Polinski, who co-produced the How to Make Gravy session with Paul, 
was a pioneer of the Australian electronic music scene, a member of 80s Melbourne new wave outfit Bear Garden, and he has vivid memories of watching Gravy come to life. Gravy, you know, you you don't know you're doing something that's going to be what it is later on. You don't know when you're making it, you know. Um, And um, so, you know... We always, we always had a, you know, you know how people say, um, uh, what is it, Shakespeare? You don't mention the uh, Scottish play. You never, you know, you never mention, um, oh, this is going to be a really big hit because <laughs> it won't be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and um, so you know, no one knew, you know, no one knew what that was going to be, um, but. It was really good fun. It still sounds relevant today, doesn't it? I mean, when you hear it on the radio, it, it could have been done now. Uh, it's um, got to do with a few things. Um, uh, it's a very dry track. You know, there's not a lot of reverb on the track. You know, the drums are really dry. And um, they were into hip hop and I was doing lots of techno and, you know, acid stuff with Ollie because I worked a lot with Ollie Olsen and we were right into electronic music and uh, I still am actually. And uh, uh, so those two genres were kind of married in that session. If you listen to it, no, so what I'm trying to say is I had to listen in the headphones recently to the track and um, it's got this really great kind of rhythm section that's, you know, pumping, um, you know, almost a hip hoppy, housey kind of groove um, with all this other stuff around it. It starts off with uh, Paul playing that, you know, that uh, the progression, chord progression in the left speaker and Spencer playing the lap steel, which he actually wrote on the spot. He came, he was in behind the, well, after we tracked it, um, he came and sat down. In fact, I think he only played the lap steel because Shane O'Mara played guitar, Paul played rhythm guitar, uh, and Spencer mucked around with writing a lap steel part. And he, he was sitting behind the console with me and we, you know, shot his guitar out in the control room through the patch bay and he just wrote this mad, I, you know, I tell you, I just thought it was mental what he was playing. It was just mad. <laughs> and and I thought, oh, God, this is so sloppy and, it, you know, this is going to work and it was just amazing. And that's what's good about it, I think. I remember Greg O'Shea was the assistant and um, so I talked to him about it. You know, Paul's singing in a, you know, Neumann U47 valve microphone because Greg said, oh, I remember you said go and put the 47 up in the booth, which I, I did. Uh, tell him apparently, um, but I, I always use a forty-seven with Paul because it's, um, you know, it suits his voice in the sense that it brings in a nice um, warmth to to his. You know, he's a has that tenor tenor sound, so you want to bring that kind of warmth into his uh, into his sound. So yeah, so the guitar was played. Intro guitar was played by Paul on a gold top Les Paul which looks like the 335 Gibson shape. And um, uh, so he played that in the left speaker and we had Spencer in the right speaker 
And uh, I remember I was thinking, geez, that's really quite listening back to it in the cans today or yesterday. Um, I was thinking that was possibly a bold thing to do because it was just a voice in the middle, a, a rhythm guitar on the left, slide in the right, and it's just like everything is clear as. And I, 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 I as as the track went down, I realised why that was done because it's so goddamn busy at the end, and I had to make all this room so you get that big build up and. We call that build up the wedge. And if you look at a, a wedge, you know, starting tiny and then building up, you know, like that, and that was called the wedge. We always called that the wedge, and that was the build up. And um, by the time you get to the end, you know, Shane's got multiple wah-wah guitars happening. If you really listen into it, I'd forgotten all about the detail that went in, you know, after we laid down a great rhythm track. And... Um, and, but everything's clear because everything's panned around and, yeah, it was good revisiting. And, and the only effect that I can hear is, is a tiny little bit of slap back echo on Paul's vocal. And um, I, I'm glad I didn't, you know, put the big plate on him and, you know, date him. You know, he could sound a bit, you know, you know when you, you hear 80s recordings and you just know that's the 80s because the snare's got the big gated reverb on it and there's that new digital kind of 8-bit sound, you know. The band was super tight, so we just, you know, we nailed, they nailed it on the second take. We probably did a third take for good measure, though, always. Now, obviously, the one voice missing here is that of much-missed Ozrock legend Spencer Jones, who passed away in 2018 at the age of 61. The Kiwi-born guitarist fronted the Johnnies, long one of my favourite bands, slung guitar in the Amazing Beast Suburban and played with too many other bands to mention, as well as compiling his own excellent and eclectic solo canon along the way. His role in Gravy, that wistful lap steel line, played a huge role in the song's eventual tone. We heard from Simon how Spencer wrote it on the spot. Here's Shane Amara talking about reacting to that on the fly and Spencer in general. He and I were poles apart as guitar players. I, like, I was like a squiddy freak, and he's like, you know, just a tough rock and roll cat. I think he used to look at me askance and go, what are you doing? You know, put away the feathers, bring out the daggers. I mean, he was an incredible writer too, because he is very pop sensibility in Spencer, which tended to be overlooked with the kind of bad boy no, 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 it's not bad, but do you know what I mean? That sort of rock, Oz rock sort of thing. So we were, had to record to tape and we were, we were, you know, we'd worked at our craft as players. So, and it was, and it was, you know, you go into these projects, especially an interesting song like Gravy, you know, it's got this really strumming guitar. So you do your tracking, you get the thing down and, Basically, you're going for your drums, bass, and rhythm instruments. And, you know, my part and Spencer's part, I think, was overdubbed. Oh, of course. Again, but, you, but you're playing live, <laughs> but often there's clams and, you know, the parts were forming, I think, a little bit as we went. And, you know, Spencer's got that really simple, beautiful lap steel line. And I just thought, well, I can't play rhythm guitar. I've got to play something that dances around this. And my thought process, 
I do recall is, is I love, I was obsessed with the guitar sound. Mick Taylor's guitar sound in Go on Goat's Head Soup, that Rolling Stones record, which is wah-wah through a Leslie speaker. Okay, so, and then I said to Paul, I'm going to try this. And I think he sort of flipped out a bit. Whoa, what the hell, you know? And again, I get the look from Spence. You're fucking kidding. <laughs> but yeah, so that, I think that, you know, for me, again, it just, by dint of that, when the drums, it was interesting listening then, you know, when the drums kick in, you got Spencer's line going, my sort of wah-wah thing over that, Bruce's organ in the background. Everyone knew how to put their parts down, what was needed. And I think that made for, you know, the immediacy of, of, of realising a song is often what gives it a spark that goes when you get a few times in, you know. Bruce also reckons that Spencer's lap steel part helped set the tone on gravy. It's got a kind of plaintive quality to me, which really um, hones in on the story. It's sort of, it's just got a sound that, that's the only word I can think of, sort of a plaintive quality or, a, you know, um, that's how, that's how it, it um, hits me anyway. Yeah. Just adds to the whole whole mood. Importantly, Paul also shares that view about Spencer's contribution. It's so emblematic. It's just pure Spencer. And um, ever since we played the song, we were, you know, uh, after Spencer left the band, there would, it would always be, uh, you know, if Dan played it, my nephew Dan Kelly, he'd play, play that part. Um, even if he didn't play the slide, he would play, he would play those notes. Um, and, you know, uh, Ash does it now. We we always honour that part because it's 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 an yeah the song doesn't it's an integral part of the song. He's such a massive character in Oz Rock. Did you enjoy having him in the band for a while there? Oh, I see it. Yeah, Spencer. I, I love love playing with Spencer. He's um uh he's a, you know he. A lot like Steve Connolly, who I played with for seven years. Um, they were good friends. They played in the same bands. Yeah, and they played. In, in fact, I first met Steve Connolly. He was playing in a band with Spencer called the Cuban Heels, and um, saw them in a pub in Richmond. So they had a lot of the same influences. They were both sort of straight-up guitar players that really didn't like playing a lot of notes or being show-off, show-off. Show off your guitar players. They really are both songwriters, so they they had that sort of sensibility of just serving the song. Um, and Spencer had this. You know, he didn't have a lot of pedals. He just like plugged the guitar into the amp and just it was you know it's all all the sound was all in his in him in his fingers. It's funny how people. Um, you know, people think, oh, you get your sound with all these different effects, but it's, sometimes it's just in the fingers. It's, it's like that with, with Spencer. Um, and, yeah, so it, I, I carry Spencer around a, a lot of songs. There's Midnight Rain, the riff he wrote on Midnight, Midnight Rain. It's really distinctive. Um, and uh, Somewhere in the City, 
and how to make gravy, yeah. So every time we play that song, you know, Spencer's with us. It's that's that's one of the beauties for us. Spencer was a, a mentor to Dan Kelly when he Dan moved down to Melbourne from Queensland. People like Spencer, Spencer Jones and Morris Frawley were really encouraging to, to young musicians. And Spencer had Dan in his band for a while. So did Morris. Um so yeah, he's there's a, a legacy there, not just in his the records he's played on, but also in, in also the um, the the um, encouragement he gave to to so many so many people played. And it's like Spencer Spencer Jones School of Rock, all the people that went through these different bands, you know. But, uh, it's a really really long lasting influence. Now, while reminiscing on the actual gravy session itself. Paul brings things back to an interesting element of the song that he mentioned in passing in episode one and that Simon mentioned earlier in this episode as well. Yeah, that, that song is set up so much with the, the bass and drums. I mean, we talked about Spencer and, and that riff, but, you know, the song really, we found that how to play that song when when Pete and Steve came up with that um, bass line and drum part. And, again, that was sort of a, a sort of a... Uh, soul, you know, and I, Pete, Pete and I loved hip hop, still do. And um, we were, you know, we loved um, all that when we were, we, we first started playing together in 1993, all the great hip hop coming out of the West Coast in America, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And so, um, we're always trying to sneak a bit of that into the tune. Now, I'm not going to lie. Until this podcast, I had never associated how to make gravy with hip-hop. But here's Pete building on the theme. It was one of those things. We, we did a production pre-production day, just a rehearsal, just to, just not nothing we, nothing too strenuous. Just um, play, play it and see if we had a shape for it in terms of the form. And then it was like, okay, let's just go in and have a crack. And at the time... Paul and I in particular, we kind of bonded over hip-hop in, in the early 90s. And there was always that thing of, like, the thing that we loved was, the you know, the way that the rhythm of the lyrics work in hip-hop against the groove and those kind of things. So the tempo of Gravy being around that kind of 92 to 94 beats per minute is the perfect tempo to start a groove that's in, that along the lines of, of a hip-hop kind of groove, which is me and Steve went into straight away. We sort of had an instinctive idea of just following the movement of the guitar, this groove will work perfectly under that. It doesn't get in the way and it, it sets up a really solid base for the lyrics. And the lyrics are kind of delivered in a way that is not unlike a hip-hop, you know, uh, sensibility in terms of its phrasing. You could sample a verse and, and you know, turn it into a hip-hop tune quite easily, you know. Bruce also remembers getting to add a little bit of flair to gravy. Did you get to add any little flourishes or anything like that? I added a bit of flourish at the end because um, uh, they had a Hammond organ in the studio, which is a, I don't know if you know much about instruments, but it's a its a bit of a um, treasured old instrument. And um, I got to add that at the as an, as an overdub from memory. I think I played piano, acoustic piano on the basic track, and then I added this organ. You can kind of hear it during the intro before the bass and drums come in. So um, 
that was my favourite part of what I did on the recording, actually. So, so far added to the mix of gravy along the way, we've had Thunderclap Newman, Radiohead, Hip Hop, The Rolling Stones and Hammond Organ. And that seems like quite an odd mix until Steve says, hold my beer. It was a couple of months before Paul had come up with that song. We were on the road in America and uh, I think we're in Philadelphia or something and and Paul started kind of schooling me about um, Stephen Foster, you know, who wrote Camp Down Races, you know, mm-hmm. um, saying that he was sort of granddaddy of songwriting and, and all that kind of stuff. So when we sort of did Gravy, I kind of had that, you know, da, 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 you know, that kind of vibe in what I was trying to play. You know? I probably wouldn't play it so noty now, but it's, it's quite a noty kind of bass part. You know? Wow, I would never have equated that with Countdown Races. That's amazing. Yeah, well, it's just <laughs> a, a little side thing, but it's, I remember thinking that, and I, I don't know if you know about like pentatonic or, you know, how notes work, but it's a similar kind of thing. And I just sort of had that vibe when we recorded it. When I first joined Paul's band, you know, he sort of knew that I was a bit of a, you know, at the time, you know, hotshot bass player dude. And he goes, you know, I don't want anything fancy. I just want simple two chords, you know. And I said, don't worry, Paul, I'll do whatever you want, you know. <laughs> I just, you know, I just want to play on a great song and, you know, make the music work. I don't want to play busy or be noty or fancy. I just want to be play for the song, you know. We've heard already how Steve and Pete had played together for years in various projects. But Pete has a theory about how in this band, they aren't actually even the real rhythm section. We play together and we don't really overthink what we're doing. It just seems to fall out. And I, you know, and it's because you know that they're just, they're, they're hearing music the same way you are. And um, when we played Gravy, that was the thing. Straight away, we knew we had a, t- you know, if Steve and I are sitting like that, it's a take. You know, everyone else can fix their bits, but that's a take, you know. <laughs> and, if the, and if the vocals, you know, like, to me, the rhythm section in Paul's band is me and Paul, you know, like, and I think the bass is also a part of it. But the, the most crucial thing for me on, on a big stage, if the sound is terrible, if I can hear Paul's guitar and Paul's vocal, it's going to be okay. So it's like I always thought the Stones rhythm section was Charlie and Keith, you know, rather than bass and drums. Everyone assumes a rhythm section is bass and drums, but often it's, you know, your characters, your rhythm guitar and your drums, I think, are really a crucial ingredient in what makes a band sound the way they sound. Speaking of playing Gravy Live, Pete reckons it connected with Paul's fans pretty much from the get-go. It's one of the only songs that we've played every show. You know, like every show. This is before I remember playing it. Um, I think when we were playing it in the States, it must have been, it might have even before it came out here. We just had it in the set once we once we recorded it. And it, it was always, it had emotion about it. So it brought people in with it, you know, the whole way the song built, the lyric, you know, and just the opening lines, you know, the minute people sort of hear that story, it's like, okay, we're in, you know. And um, it's always been that. And it's it's such an amazing song in, in that I reckon I was trying to, you know how you lie awake at night sometimes and you get some idea in your head? I was trying to add up the amount of times I reckon I've played that song. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it'd be close to a thousand, you know, um, <laughs> because you're looking at like, there's been a lot of shows since 1996. And the only time we haven't done that song is when we've only done short three song gigs, you know, like at a special event. Every other night we would have played that song. And um, every night you play it, you want to, every time he starts that song, you want it to be the greatest version you've done of the song. It just brings that out of us, all of us. And the new band that's been, you know, when we say the new band, the new band's been together for 13 years. So, you know, there's 13 years of those guys playing the song, which is longer than the original people played the song. So there's a new, it sounds the same, you know, to the naked ear, but there's nuances that everyone puts in. And there's just, I think over time you um, you really grasp on, you, you know, unconsciously you, you find little ways of dynamics that work with the lyrics. I'm always following Paul's lyrical, you know, where he's phrasing it, the emotion that goes with it. There's, there's just things that become orchestrated over time. And um, there's, you feel, it's, it's funny because when you record a song like that, it's like when you talk to people that worked on classic soul tunes. I've met a few, um, you know, like Cornell Dupree and people like that, and you ask them about a recording that is iconic to you, and they just go, oh, you know, it was just something. We, we just went in and did it that day. And this, the, when we did Gravy, it, it felt like, yeah, this is something good, but you didn't know the weight of it until t- time tells that. And now you actually feel this incredible responsibility to it. And, um, and people, the, the amount of people that it touches over the years is just insane. It's um, my brother um, got asked to, my brother Dan, who was in the band for a while, he got asked to go and play at Richmond Football Club's Mad Monday in 2020 after they won the Prague to go and perform to play gravy on the guitar so that Sean Griggs could sing it. Sean Griggs is there yeah, because it was his favourite song and everybody knew the words. So, you know, this, that's where that song ends up. So it's pretty wild. Um, but it always had a thing. It, it, it just had this connection. And um, I think the fact that it's a Christmas song, it's about family, it's about people missing people, and it's got characters that are very... Um, they're very Australian characters. They're international on one level, but you, everyone can relate to somebody in that song. You know, the 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 new the, the classic is the um, every family's got someone in it that brings a new partner to Christmas that no one likes. You know, like we've all been there, and so that to me is one of the key moments in the song. Is you know, what's what was his name again? You know, that guy. You know, <laughs> Paul reckons that while it's a fun song for him and the band to play live. It's not always so fun for the fans trying to sing along. The thing that's really surprised me that it's become such a sing-along song. When we do, when we play it, you can see the audience singing along, but they still, because it's sort of talk sung, it's not that easy to sing along to, um, especially because I'm not landing it, landing the words in the same place every time I do it. So it's funny watching people sing along. It's it's. It's uh, it's a fluid song like that, so it's it's not all set whether whether where the words fall, but um, for some reason it's become a sing along song. But yeah, I, I didn't have a chorus; it was set in prison, um, so I didn't certainly didn't see it as a commercial song or being widely popular. Um, I don't think Love got much play at the start. It started picking up play, you know, just over the years. Um, Around Christmas time, but but 
we always liked playing it as a band. So there was something about the song that um, was all, it's all, still is to this day. Uh, it's one of those songs that, um, and what's the best way to say it? One of those songs that plays us. We don't we don't play it because it's it um it has this sort of inbuilt sort of gear change and so it keeps sort of stepping up um in intensity uh, so it's like going on a ride for the band and the rest of the band probably say the same sort of thing it's like when you play the song it's like going on a ride the song takes you so uh, we like playing it for that reason. Bruce reckons it's a collective empathy with the characters in Gravy, which forges the strong live connection with the crowd. As soon as people latch onto what they, it's like the song to her door is the same sort of song that just goes to people's hearts. They can really imagine this situation the person's in. And I think people just get involved in that. And it's very moving for them. And that's what connects to people in a big way in my book anyway. It's so, true. You, know, you can really, really you can really feel for the protagonist of the, of the song. You know? yeah. But it, it was always a crowd favourite in, in my memory. You know, it was a, definitely a band favourite too, to play it. Shane also recalls Gravy being pretty much an immediate showstopper once added to the set. There's always songs, especially with someone so popular as Paul, uh, it's usually, usually only a handful of you play it as soon as you hear, they hear that first riff or something, the, the energy in the room is palpable. You know, I can, it didn't, didn't, to her door, of course, I th- as I remember it, an audience in a theatre, you know, Her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney would be very well behaved and there'd be a few people getting up and dancing and stuff. Play the first few notes of Two Adore and Mayhem. Run down to the front. People were dancing. Ushers were like, oh, what the f-? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Gravy had that thing. And it certainly had that thing with the band. It was really fun to play. As soon as Paul started doing that intro, it's like, yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, there are, I think with every song list, there are, a bunch of songs which are highlights to, to individuals, you know. But, yeah, that was, a, that was a high, always a high, you know, a high point of the set. Now, we really have to talk about how to make Gravy's original low-budget film clip. It's on YouTube. There's a link in our show notes. Nothing says Aussie Christmas like tinsel on a hills hoist. Here's Paul. Well, that was done by my friend Ronnie Reinhardt. He's no longer with us. And um, he... Um, at that time, what was that? Yeah, in the 90s, 96. I never, I didn't think much about um, doing clips. I mean, we did clips when, you know, it was like, oh, here's a single that um, the record company think, this is a single, we'll take it, see if we can get it played on commercial radio. So we would do clips. Uh, and, um, that, you know, they were fun sometimes, sometimes boring, sometimes fun. But I didn't really have... I didn't really have a strong feeling one way or the other about, oh, you have to do a clip for a song. It was just probably in that that time when, you know, when when um, music videos 
first that became big. They became really big and people put, put did big budgets and so on. But um, but then I think that sort of um, that sort of fizzled out for a while. And you know, then of course the video videos have got big again because the whole culture has become much more visual. So, but at that time, I, I didn't really, I was, I couldn't care one way or the other whether he did a clip for a song. So Ronnie, uh, Ronnie just sort of badgered me to, you should do something visual for this song, do a clip, and um, and we just, so we just went up to, it was a, a flat, the roof, the roof of a flat that Steve Hadley lived in, in uh, Elwood, in Melbourne, and we filmed it at the roof, at the rooftop, um, and it's very, very basic, pretty raw, but. I'm t- I'm glad we've got it. Steve Hadley, whose apartment roof was the clip's location, to use the lingo, also remembers it being pretty laid back and hot. Well, you know, we sort of had to do a, a clip really quickly and, and um, you know, Paul and Pete and Spencer and Bruce had been to my apartment many times. You know, I used to live up on the roof there and and Paul said, oh, why don't we just shoot it? I'll get my mate Ronnie to come and we'll just do a really cheap, quick video and... It was stinking hot. It was like 40 degrees. And so we just went up there and did it at my place, you know, last minute kind of thing. It's sort of dodgy, you know, but who cares? You know, we just did it. And you can sort of see, you know, Ronnie sort of pans out over the Melbourne and you can sort of see, you know, after that, when I was still, I'd been there for years, but, you know, people would come and, you know, like pilgrims would come and go, oh, this is where they shot the video for gravy, you know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Pete's main memory of the gravy clip also involves heat. That was the hottest day. <laughs> I was telling someone about it the other day. As I remember seeing it at the time when we recorded and, and you know, with first view of it, I went, you know, that looks a bit cheap and nasty. But now it's aged really well. It's like it, um, it really captures, uh, you know, that whole St Kilda Elwood area in that time, which has changed so much since then. And, um, but it was, it was the, the roof was, it was a concrete roof that had Malthoid on it. So, you know, like a classic sixties apartment block or fifties. So it was hot and Steve lived on the roof. He had a, an apartment that was on that roof. That's why we did it there. So we just, we do a take and then we duck inside to his place. I remember we were watching a documentary on the band on the telly in between takes. So you look at it now and you think, that was a real time, a real moment in time, you know. Um, but, yeah, I just remember it being super hot. Bruce also remembers recording the gravy clip being hot, but also, thankfully, relatively quick. It was looks like it. It was bloody hot from memory. And, uh, <laughs> and it just – most film clips can be a bit of a pain in the bum because they're often really um, drawn out and um, – um, a bit boring for the artist, to be quite honest. There's a lot of sitting around and doing cutting scenes and doing this and doing that. It takes blood forever. That one was just filmed a couple of passes. You know what I mean? We we mimed, we had the song blaring out pretty loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think we might have played through it three times or something, and that was pretty much it. So I love that. Um, we, you, you didn't get a chance to bored to death by the filming, put it that way. It was just a bit of a euphoric kind of 
atmosphere to that clip. It's a simple idea, and often simple ideas are the best. You know what I mean? It's not too overly thought out. It just worked. We'll introduce a new voice here late in the episode. John O'Donnell is these days head of Paul's label EMI, as well as co-managing Cold Chisel and being a Rewind All-Star, having already appeared in the Silverchair, Triffords and Something for Kate seasons. And back in the 90s, he was working at Sony, who in 97 took over Mushroom's distribution and therefore the handling of Paul's catalogue. But above all that, he's a self-professed Paul Kelly superfan. He's been following Paul's career closely since the very early 80s, and he reckons that while the gravy clip looks cheap and nasty, at the end of the day, it does the trick. The video is kind of the biggest pile of shit ever, and yet it um, I really like it, but it's done for about $2.50, um, and it's just the band playing live on the rooftop in St Kilda, um, and it works really well, and you see them all doing their magical things, but it's pretty bog-standard and average in so many ways. Um, but, again... It was sort of, and I kind of think maybe Mushroom at that time knew that Paul was on the wane. There wasn't really a budget for these things. I don't know who paid for it. I should ask Paul that because, you know, maybe he paid for it himself, but I'm sure the record company probably did. But it felt like it was an afterthought. I've now come to love it, but I remember seeing it for the first time and going, oh, (laughs) Ah. Um, but again, you know, it, it also shows you that if you've got a magic song, that it can defy all of those things and it can actually make them charming, naive and, and beautiful in their own way. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's very unapologetically set in summer in the film clip because they're up on the roof and, you know, they, they look like they're getting sunburned. Um, they're sweating and, um, you know, there's not a lot of money spent on makeup and hair and stuff. But, um, but yeah, and that, that's an important thing for Paul too. You know, we, we experience a different Christmas down here in Australia and the song reflects that and Paul's new Christmas album totally reflects that. It's, you know, it's not one with snow and mistletoe and that kind of thing. It's... You know, and I think Paul's always wanted to document the Australian experience, and he does that really well in How to Make Gravy. John recently oversaw the release of the Paul Kelly's Christmas Train compilation that we discussed briefly in episode one, which excitingly contains a brand new band recording of How to Make Gravy, even incorporating the slight lyrical change that's featured in live sets for a while now. Here's Paul. I didn't want to just sort of put the old version on this record, like, you know, I thought if we're going to put it on, we just just uh, record it again. I mean, we we play it all the time. The band wasn't sure about it either, but but once I decided, oh, let's do let's do the let's you know we play it live. Let's just and we, the way we play the the way we record in the studio, we we play live anyway. We set up all together and um and just play and sing until we till till we get a good take all together. Well, we don't spend we do minimal overdubbing. Um, so we knew, well, I knew it would be, would be fine doing it, but that's funny. The band got nervous. I said, we're going to do it. And then Steve Schran, the engineer, 
He was saying, you know, he said, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to fuck up gravy. So there was a few nerves about, oh, you know, because the song was so well, not so well known. So, you know, to people who, to people who know my music. So um, there was a little bit of, oh, you know, why, why should we, why fuck with this? But um, then we just tried, you know, we just, we played it, we played every gig. So I wanted to just, Record it, then if we if you like it, we'll put it on the record. And um, yeah, we did. I think we got it first or second take. It's, like I said, that's one of the songs. It's a song that plays us. We don't play yet. And also, yeah, it's the twenty fifth twenty fifth anniversary, of course. So that was not. I guess that's another yeah, good reason to do another version. I love the new version. That's great. Thank yeah. you. I mean, I'm sure there'll be people. Who, What's you know Nina Simone? What? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, some people will just prefer the old version, but that's fine. Can I ask about that? Like, that's been a change that you did in live sets from quite a while ago, just that subtle change from Cologne to Nina Simone that you just alluded to. Is that just the folk tradition? Like, what, what prompts you to make little changes to your own lyrics? Just for fun. Yeah. I sometimes still sing Cologne. Um, and it's just. It, yeah, it's just it's sort of just popped into my head one one time, and uh, um, so yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a kind of song you can you can do that too. Yeah, Pete Luscombe, the only member apart from Paul, of course, to play on both these versions of Gravy some twenty five years apart, admits approaching the new recording with some trepidation. Out of the whole record that we just did, that was the probably the most nervous I was doing that song again because you just didn't want to overcook it. You know, it's it's become an epic live tune. So the whole thing was we actually, we were even in two minds whether we should do it. You know, should we do this again? And then it was like, well, it makes sense to put it on this record. Well, then the argument is do we just put the original version on that song? They said, no, let's do something that represents where it's at now. So then you've got, we went in and we made a, we sort of made a pact that if we don't get it quickly, we might abandon ship because we don't want to overthink it. You know, you, start, you know, all of a sudden somebody's going to start suggesting, well, maybe we should uh, change the feel or maybe we should, do, you know, do, <laughs> add this, you know, put a bow on it, do something that's just going to destroy it. So we ended up, we played it a few times and I think, we probably used about the second or third take of this one as well. You know, once we had it settled and all the sounds were right in your headphones, you can't, and it was so, it's, it's hard trying to explain to people, but that song is always either last or second last in the set. So you've played, you've been on stage for an hour and 20 minutes. So you're well and truly in the groove, you're warmed up, you're not overthinking, everything just spills out. When you go in and record a tune at 10 o'clock in the morning, it's not the same. <laughs> so, you know, you're in there at 10 in the morning, everything is under a microscope as it is in the studio, and you start thinking, man, I'm going to have to, everyone's starting to think about their parts. They've never thought about their parts that quickly. <laughs> so we, we, did a, we did a take, and, and it felt pretty good pretty quickly. And um, we listened back, and one of them, one of them, we tried to make it a little too live. You know, it, it, it sort of had the, you know, that excitement of like, 
epic live ending and it's like that doesn't really translate to the studio as much so we went okay we need to just dial, pick a version that's dialed down slightly but still has a looseness and a spontaneity about it and it has a great vocal performance so that was the one we ended up with and that's the one we're going to end episode two with here is the brand new 2021 version of how to make gravy from the paul kelly's christmas train album
Thanks as always for checking out Rewind. We have one more episode in the How to Make Gravy season looking at the song's legacy, which is spanning generations and influencing some of our current crop of rising stars, a couple of whom we'll hear from. I'll catch you then. Rewind with Steve Bell is a euphony podcast produced by Craig Trawick and Andrew Mars. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dulla Bar. For more euphony podcasts, visit our website, Spotify, Apple, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.